חגיגה דף כ"ו עמוד א', Integrity and Trust, גנבים שהחזירו את הכלים. So we've got a, a fairly straightforward piece today, but in the, in the Gemara we'll see how two different ways of reading the Gemara, it's not even deep interpretations, it's just two ways of understanding Pshat in, in the Mishnah and in the Gemara, lead us to two different uh, philosophies, two different ways of, of seeing the world. The two different ways are by Rabbeinu Hananel and, and Rashi. And in, uh, Rashi, of course, is our guide through the whole of Shas. We can't begin to understand Gemara without, without Rashi. Rashi is our Rebbe. Without, without Rashi, the Gemara doesn't make sense. Rashi fills in the, the gaps between the words of the Gemara to make it intelligible for us. But before Rashi, a similar thing was done by Rabbeinu Hananel. Rabbeinu Hananel is the first half of the 11th century uh, in Tunisia, in the area of Tunisia, um, and Rabbeinu Hananel was one of those people we've spoken before about Rabbeinu Hananel, Rabbeinu Gershom, just these two powerhouses that, that connected the next era, which was the era of the Rishonim, to the previous era, which was the area of the Goanim, and, and Rabbeinu Gershom and Rabbeinu Hananel were two people who, who bridged that, those two eras, and, and Rabbeinu Hananel did something similar to what, what Rashi did, he almost just translates the Gemara, he just makes the Gemara intelligible, realizing at that time that while the Amoraim, of course, knew the Gemara because they created it, and the Goanim were close enough to that time of the Gemara, they were immediately afterwards, they, they understood it. But as time got further, it was going to be more and more difficult to understand the Gemara, and so Rabbeinu Hananel makes the Gemara intelligible. It's interesting that, that Rashi, it would seem, did not know Rabbeinu Hananel, had not seen the work of Rabbeinu Hananel. His, his school later on, the school of the Tosfot, do know Rabbeinu Hananel, and they incorporate Rabbeinu Hananel into their commentaries, but Rashi didn't. So an opportunity to see a piece of Gemara explained by Rashi and Rabbeinu Hananel differently from one another is, is interesting, and this is such a case. The case is, is you've had a break-in in your house, or one has had a break-in in their house, and you're living in the time of the Beis Amikdash, where we're concerned with Tumah and Tahara, as we've been discussing these last few days. Uh, and that's why these Gemaras are a bit difficult for us, not because the Gemaras themselves are so difficult, it's because they're unfamiliar, because we don't deal with Tumah and Tahara, we're not familiar with Tumah and Tahara. But in those days they were. And in your house there are barrels of oil and wine, the same kind of products we've been discussing for the last few days. Uh, and there's a break-in. There are two ways that there can be a break-in to your house. The one is Ganavim, you can have thieves, and the other is you can have tax collectors. Um, in both cases, we assume they're Amaratzim. What Talmud Chochem would want to be a tax collector? Isn't that right, Jared? We have Jared with us, one of the earliest Matmonim members from day one, every single day, sitting around the table with you, but you don't even know that he's sitting in Washington and sitting around the table with you and learning the Matmonim every day. And and not only that, but Jared reconstructs the matmon into a drosher for his team. He's one of the America's leading international tax experts. And he has a team of people working for him. And he takes the matmonim and he feeds it to them as a lesson of life, as a lesson of leadership, as a lesson of, of how to manage their business. So you should follow him on LinkedIn and you'll see how, what he does with the matmonim. Um, it's, it's not just that he listens to the shir and stops and goes home and, and that's the end of it. He processes it and recreates it and reconstructs it and uses it as, as a business tool. Um, so the, um, 
uh, the, the, uh, I swear because you're a, you're a tax expert, but you're on the opposite side of the tax collectors, right, Jared? The Jewish people are on the opposite side of the tax collectors usually. Now, Tamit Chochem will be a tax consultant, not a tax collector. So if a person is a tax collector, you assume he's an Amharit. So otherwise, why would he do that? And and they used to break into the houses. If you weren't paying your taxes, it wasn't like here that they make your life a misery from outside your house. They would come into your house and make your life a misery, and they would take things as as, as security. Or ganavim, or thieves, which we also assume are amaratim. Tamidechachomim were not going to be thieves. So now the question is, did they touch the kalim or not? Have they disturbed the kalim, these barrels, and and... Are they now t- tame? Because we don't know where these amaratsim have been and what they've touched and how they're being affected and how they handle the, the, uh, the, these barrels in ways that make them tame. There are different questions around how that is done. As far as Kodesh is concerned, and you remember we've been talking about the difference between Truma and Kodesh, if we want to use this wine or oil for purposes of Kodesh to bring into the uh, into the Beis Hamikdash and use on the Mizbeach for Nesachim or for Menachot, then Neemanim, we believe them. They say, look, we didn't, we didn't, we just stole your goods, we didn't touch your barrels. Uh, we believe them. Uh, but for Truma, not, not so. So the Gemara then says, Uramina, I'll ask you a question. We have a Brysa, where the Brysa says, thieves that broke into your house. The only tumor is where they walked. If you can track their path, that's the area, the kalim around the, where they walked in your house. There's where you have to worry about tumor, but you don't have to worry about other things in the, in the house. Now, how you, on, how you interpret this question is where Rashi and Rabbeinu Hananel deviate. What does the question mean? When the Gemara says it's only, only the makomdri satarigal, is the, is the area you have to worry about. The rest of the house is Tameh. The, the rest of the, of the house is Tahor. You don't have to worry about that. Even though Lohir Zirut came, they didn't bring Kalim back. They didn't, they didn't do anything like that. They just came in, they broke in. You don't have to worry about Tuma in the house, says the, says the, the Brysa. That's how Rabbeinu Hanan learns the question. We're talking there where they did tshuva. What does where they did tshuva mean? Let's, let's move into Rabbeinu Hananel. On the question, Rabbeinu Hananel says in the part that I've made bold, If you look at the b'risa, the house is tahor, it's pure, you don't have to worry about Tumah, even if they didn't bring Kalim back. They, didn't, they, they were there stealing or, or taking whatever they needed to take. Nevertheless, the house is Tahor, so why are we worried? Why are we saying in the Mishnah, only if they return the Kalim, then it is Tahor? Ufarik Rav Pinchas, and Rav Pinchas answers, this is Rabbi Hanana talking, Beganavim shebau lignov ganvu klum. We're talking about thieves that broke into the house and had a change of heart. And once they got into your house, they decided, we're not taking anything. So we assume, we make assumptions, that just as they had a change of heart about stealing, they didn't touch anything either. So we're using their teshuvah, we're using their change of heart to help us reconstruct the circumstance. We're doing detective work here. 
Did they did they attach the barrels or didn't they attach the barrels? Since they we don't even ask them, they don't even have to comment. It's not a conversation. All we know is they had a change of heart. They took nothing when we came into the house. Nothing was missing. So we realized they had a change of heart. We can assume that they didn't touch anything either. So the only part that is tame is where they actually walked. There they obviously they had to have touched things. Since they had a change of heart, we don't make assumptions that they touched anything. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to assume anything. Nothing was disturbed in the house. So you can assume the house wasn't tampered with. So to in our Mishnah, those Ganavim are not believed, unless they returned the Kalim to their place. So we, they had a change of heart. They were going to steal and they decided not to. They put everything back. But in either case, if they didn't do Tshuva, if they actually handled the, the barrels and they stole things, then we assume they're Tameh. We're afraid they passed these barrels, handled them in order to steal them, and then they got distracted or disturbed, or they found something better to steal. And they left these aside. They couldn't put them all on their back. They couldn't carry everything, so they left them. But we assume they handled things. If they're Ganavim in the house, they touch things, they move things. And, and so on. If they didn't have a change of heart, then there was Geneva. So according to Rabbeinu Hananel, this whole question of tshuva is change of heart before the theft. If they actually stole them, then, then, then we assume they handled them. We don't, it's not, according to Rabbeinu Hananel, this is not a conversation between us and the Ganavim. We're not interviewing them. It's just assumptions that we make based on circumstance. If we see they had a change of heart, we don't have to worry about Tumah. If they handled, if they stole stuff, we do have to worry about Tumah. That's Rabbi Nechanan, how he understands the Gemara. But Rashi is a little different, and in the difference, there's a big difference. On that Ela Makom Drisat Regel HaGanavim, when the Gemara quoted from the Brisa and said that if there's a breaking into your house, the only part you need to worry about is where the Ganavim walked. And Rabbeinu Hananel that explained that question as being, and the rest of the house is tahor, so you see, we don't worry about it, even if somebody breaks into your house. It's only where they actually walk you have to worry about. And then the Gemara said, no, that's only if they had a change of heart. But the question is, the rest of the house is tahor. According to Rashi, But the, the, the question here is from the tameh part. Because there are two parts to this b'risa. The b'risa says the part that they walked on is Tameh, and the other part is Tahor. So what is the chidush of the b'risa? Is the b'risa coming to tell us that only that part is Tameh, but the rest is Tahor, the way Rabbeinu Hananel learns it? Or is the b'risa saying everything is, is, is Tahor, but the, where they walked is Tameh? And if where they walked is Tameh, then certainly if they handled barrels, it's going to be Tameh. And certainly if they stole barrels and took them home, it's going to be Tameh. So, so how can they be believed? Answers the Gemara Kisha, And what does Rashi explain? Umachmat And because of the tshuva, they brought the barrels back. They took the barrels home. 
Now we don't know, oi, what did they do with the barrels at home? Did they handle the barrels? What did they do? Did they open the barrels? Who knows what they did? But they come back and they say, we didn't touch, we didn't handle them, we didn't do anything that would cause them to become Tameh. Hilkach lo meshakri, says Rashi, about tshuva doesn't, doesn't lie. He's gone through the whole process of doing something wrong and deciding it was wrong and bringing it back. And now he gives us information as about tshuva. As somebody who's done tshuva, you can believe, his, you can believe him because he's gone through that process. So whereas according to Rabbeinu Hananel, we're using the change of heart to interpret the circumstance without his information. We make our own interpretation of, of the circumstance. Rashi says we're dependent on his information. The question is, can we trust him or not? Says Rashi, and normally a gun of you can't trust. And, and somebody breaks into your house to collect the taxes, and the, you, you can't trust as far as Tuma and Tyra is concerned. But a person does tshuva. A person has a change of heart and brings the, the barrels back and, and says, I'm sorry, I took these, I stole them, I've had a change of heart, I'm giving you back. You say, oh, but you took the barrels out of us, this was truma. Did you touch the barrels? What did you do? He says, nothing, nothing, nothing. They were sealed, I didn't open them, didn't touch them, I assure you. Okay, you're about tshuva, we accept that. But we see from here the power of tshuva is not just to correct the particular avera from which one is doing tshuva. The power of tshuva is it transforms the human being into a different stature. The person is a different stature. Who we trust in halakha and who we don't trust is a difference in stature. And it's not only in halakha, it's in, in business, in social interactions as well. People, trusting or not trusting somebody is a manifestation of the stature with which you regard him. Is this a person of integrity? As far as this is concerned, it's not a blanket thing. There are people you trust for one thing, but maybe not for something else. You trust for something small, but not for something big, or vice versa. You trust them on the big things, but not on the small things. And then there are people you trust for everything. Your level of trust is an indicator of the, the stature, the esteem in which you hold them, what kind of person you regard them to be. And when a person has done wrong and has done shuva. Your ability to trust it. Last week you didn't trust them. This week you do trust them. What's changed? He did shuvah. Yes, but he did shuvah for not putting tefillin on one day. Doesn't matter. When a person goes through a shuvah process, you can believe him. He's a, he's a person who's questioned himself, who's confronted himself, who's, who's aware, has high levels of self-awareness and is repairing things that are wrong, it's a person of integrity. Doesn't mean that we, we all do Averot, but to be able to do Tshuva, that's an act of integrity. To be able to confront the Avera and, and do the Tshuva, that in itself is an act of, of integrity. And so it's, it's, it's really important with, that we understand uh, in our interactions with people, firstly, when they do Tshuva, when a person apologizes sincerely, that's not just fixing the wrong that they did, that's elevating the stature of the human being themselves and impacts the way we relate to them, particularly in the area of trust. As I said yesterday, trust is an unbelievable gift. When you trust somebody, they feel amazing. And when you don't trust them, they feel terrible. There's nothing as, not nothing, there's not much that is as demeaning for somebody as being micromanaged, which managers tend to do all the time. And what is micromanagement? I don't trust you to do it. I know how to do it better. I'll show you how to do it. I'll do it for you. I'll tell you exactly what to do. I'll script it for you. We're constantly in, in, our, in, in businesses and in life, we're saying to people, I don't trust you. 
As I said yesterday, the example about the banks that make you sign a million forms about pre, very complex premarital contracts. We all the time we're giving through messages. I don't really trust you, and and that is so undermining of human dignity. And when you say I do trust you. Uh, and it, it's interesting. There was a, a bank. I don't have the full details of the case study on my in my head at the moment, but you uh, you can look it up. Or I can find it for you. A whole bank that was started in um, it wasn't in India. It was in in one of those neighbouring towns. Where people were very very poor, and that was the beginning of of major micro lending. And the Yusoid of was going to trust people to pay back. The lending was done without virtually without documentation to ordinary poor people. And enabled them to start businesses and them to build industries, to build industries because they couldn't get loans from banks. It wasn't they were unbankable, and that started the whole. This guy got a Nobel Prize for it because it changed the whole uh, in, industry of micro lending. But but the the chiddush was how he was willing to take that chance. And I've had many many cases in business where I've <laughs> persuaded people to drop the contracts or simplify them to one page. Because when you've built trust with a person, you don't need the contracts. Does that mean that you'll never be taken for a ride? No, you will be taken for a ride. And you'll be taken for a ride with contracts as well. But it's worth it. What you gain by the trusting relationship that you build is so much more than what you lose by undermining the trust in, in making everything, bringing everything down to legalization and to, uh, and to a bureaucratic solution. To be able to do that, so seek opportunities to sh- say to people, "I trust you," and watch them rise to the occasion, because we're wired in such a way that one of the things we find most uncomfortable is to disappoint a person who has trusted us, to disappoint a person who's believed in us. If somebody doesn't believe in us, we don't worry about disappointing them, and then we say, "He keeps on disappointing me. I'm always disappointed." Of course you are, because you never trusted him. But if you trust him, then the, the system in the person kicks in. If this person's trusted me, I, I, can't, I can't let them down. And you're able to elevate the person, elevate the relationship, and you have a much higher chance of a person delivering a high-quality outcome because of the trust you've put in, in the person, as we see in the Rashi. Assume that a Baal Tshuva is not lying because he's gone through a process of self-awareness and self-confrontation.